The pandemic has hit us hard, and healthcare workers are our first and last lines of defense. So while they're looking out for us, who's looking out for them? There has never been a more critical time to address the mental health of our healthcare community. This is Lift the Mask, voices of heroes in the silent pandemic. Join the Quell Foundation and Hartford Health's Dr. John Santopietro as we provide a podcast for healthcare workers discussing their psychological traumas associated with continual exposure to the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello, my name is John Santopietro. I'm a psychiatrist and I am the physician-in-chief at the Behavioral Health Network of Hartford HealthCare, headquartered in Hartford, Connecticut. During the pandemic, I have been part of a team providing support to healthcare workers on the front lines, and I have a particular interest in making sure that their stories get told. The Quell Foundation has put together this podcast in order to lift up the voices of those on the front lines as a way of reaching those who are still out there in the hope that they will be inspired to reach out for the help and support that is there for them. While there's been a lot of reporting about the pandemic in the news and even about the front lines of healthcare, what's unique about this podcast is that you get to hear the stories from the people that lived it and actually are still living it. I would also encourage other leaders to listen into this podcast because there are many lessons and clues about what makes good leadership in a pandemic and a crisis. It is my pleasure to welcome you to Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in the Silent Pandemic. So welcome, Suzanne. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And uh, maybe we should start, if you don't mind, just telling us a little bit about your role and the role that you were in at the beginning of the pandemic and where you were when it started. So I've been an ER nurse the past 17 years. And at the time, I was a travel nurse in Greenville, North Carolina, working in an emergency department. I had started there in October, so I was pretty familiar with the hospital by the time COVID hit. And so that was March. And how did you, when you said when the COVID hit, how did that, um, had you been preparing for it? We had been preparing for it. At first, we were just hearing about it. And we kept thinking, it's not coming. It's not going to come. It's definitely not going to come to this country. But... Sure enough, when the first case was documented and all of that, we did start getting ready, preparing like a 10-bed unit. It was a side of the ED, and we set that up for respiratory slash COVID, possible COVID patients to try to keep them separate from the regular emergency room. I mean, as we talk with people, sometimes there was preparation, sometimes there wasn't. It sounds like in your case, there was preparation in the emergency room to get ready for people coming with COVID. And what was your experience of that? Did that seem like, you know, this is a good thing, you know, your experience of the organization or leadership, you know, what was your experience of that on the ground? It was a great thing. It was, I, to this day, tell that manager, you know, I see her, she happens to live in my hometown. And when I see her, I, I still tell her, you know, you did such a great job preparing for COVID. I always felt like they really, had our back and we had plenty of, it seemed like that we had plenty of PPE. We had a plan. We knew what doctors were going to work in there. We knew what nurses would be in there. And that was really comforting and reassuring that I was going to be working. At least if it did hit us, I would be 
in a relatively safe environment. One of the things that I think as leaders listen to this, that's helpful is to hear what are the things that make a difference. So you were getting information, you felt like people had your back. It sounds like you felt like people were trying to keep you safe. Yes. And those of us that were going to be working in that unit took part in setting it up. So, you know, we had a say in what we thought was going to work and what wouldn't work. And obviously we had to learn as we went when reality hit, but we prepared it the best we could with what we knew at the time. That's great. And when you say reality hitting, was there even a moment where like you knew it was coming? Yeah. The first documented case in the county that morning, I just remember 9 a.m., like we got the call, we need to open. They weren't going to open that unit until there was a documented case in the county, because obviously that's, you know, more resources that Mm -hmm. we didn't need to use yet. And all of a sudden it just felt like, wow, like, you know, we talked about this, we set it up for weeks, and now this is real. Like, it was really frightening. So that was the moment where it became not just theoretical. No, it was really scary for everybody. You remember that day even? Oh, God, yes. And did a patient come in that day? Yes, we did start getting patients just trickling in, saying they had exposure. Their employer wanted them to come in and be checked. And at that point, we were saying that's not a reason to come. So the the lack of education in the community was really, really bad at that time. It just, nobody knew what to do. They thought, oh, if I've been exposed, I should go get tested. So those are the kind of patients we were seeing, you know, like the first week or so. So they were coming to you and they sounded afraid. Afraid, but they didn't have any symptoms, so it couldn't justify anything. So even if you wanted to test them, it was going to take seven days. And if they, you know... We pretty much just told them to go home and quarantine if they were really fearful of that. So the the first phase of this for you, almost, it's almost like listening to, it's like on slow motion, you know, like you're getting, you know, it's not going to come here and then maybe it is and get the unit ready and you're, and it's, that's going pretty well. And then literally the day that it hits the state and then you actually start getting people literally trickling in that day. It's pretty amazing. You know, we take it for granted PPE and N95s. And what was it like uh, getting used to using those kinds of precautions? I mean, we were used to putting on the yellow gowns, you know, for certain infections with patients. But to wear that N95, you know, we all get fit tested for it through employee health. And we talk about, you know, if there's maybe a tuberculosis case, you're going to wear that and all of that. But you never really stop to think like, I'm going to wear this thing now for hours and none of us were used to that. I mean, I had terrible claustrophobia with that. And then, you know, the face shield over that or the goggles and just sweating in the room. It was not easy to get used to. I don't know that we're all, none of us are really used to it still. It's almost like your job got plucked up and put on another planet. You know, it's like temperatures different and, you know, I think you said people were overheating and even getting nauseated in the masks initially. And was there a point at which things turned from a trickle and sort of started kicking up? Yeah. And that whole, like, when you say that slow motion, that's such a good way to put it because it was such anticipation mm-hmm. for what was to come. I almost think sometimes that that feeling was worse than like, if you're going to come, just come. Like we can't, 
worry about this every single day. So yeah, when it finally hit and it was just like this slowly, we're okay, we're getting used to this unit and the flow. And then all of a sudden, like just crap hits the fan. Patients are sicker. We're coding people over there. Our nice little organized, you know, unit, our drawers and all of that are just, it now looks like a trauma room in the ED. The whole 10 units, the whole 10 beds. And we realized we needed more staff. Yeah, it was just like full blown all of a sudden. Do you remember how long that took? Like from the trickle to get to that, it all looked like one big trauma area? I'm going to guess a couple of weeks looking Mm -hmm. back. I'm pretty sure it was like a couple of weeks because people would have COVID and they were home, you know, trying to handle this respiratory infection and they would come in by ambulance just in total respiratory arrest and it was like a couple of weeks i remember you used this term things got real absolutely that morning at 9 a.m things got real because we were like oh we actually have to open this unit and then like how did the reality hit about this second wave like seeing a, a patient or two that you thought it really hit you in a particular way. Wasn't there, there was a woman. Well, all the patients were just so vulnerable mm-hmm. and at our mercy. And we had, we really didn't have the answers yet, you know? Um, but one lady and two ladies kind of stick in my mind, but one in particular that we knew she was about to code. She knew she was about to code. She just looked up at me. I literally was probably this, you know, I was pretty close to her, her face. And she just said, help me, I'm scared. And I was like, holy crap, like I, I can barely help myself right now. That's how I felt. And, you know, you've been doing nursing for a while. You've seen a lot, but that what you saw with that woman and you said there was another woman too. Yeah. The other woman, definitely we were coding her and the husband wanted to come in so badly and they had been married like 60 years or something. And at the time, no visitors were allowed in, but we did managed to get him in and he just looked through the window those images that stuff those images stick with you i think that's what a lot of us are struggling with they stick with you and they don't they don't easily go away no and you can remember the the time you know the time of day pretty Mm -hmm. much the room the whole scene i mean even as you're describing them to me i'm getting a picture i mean the the pictures must be really strong to come across that way as I was saying a little bit, it's not like you're new to nursing or new to ER nursing or new to, you know, people coding, but something about these patients was really sticking. And I wonder if you know what that was, because the first one, you know, the, the person that looked at you and said, you know, I'm scared. Can you help me? You, I think you said something like, and, and you were a little off balance. I just felt helpless myself. Like helpless. I okay. didn't know how I could possibly help this lady, but I, I said, we are going to help you. We're going to do our best for you. And that's really what else could I say to her? And of course, in the beginning, everybody was scared. So you're standing there as the healthcare provider saying, am I next? Is my mask working right now? She's positive for COVID and I'm, you know, pouncing on her chest and suctioning her and doing these things. Am I next? And I think that makes it hard when you're so scared yourself to you know, reach out and be able to like, we're so used to just calming the patients. We never really tell them everything's going to be okay because you shouldn't, but we tell them that, you know, we're here for them. And it just felt like I could 
say that in a real way, even though I said it, yeah. I said it because it was the right thing to say. But I, I think for the first time, like, I think it stuck with me because I didn't believe it. We just did not know how we could help her. As you're talking, Suzanne, I think most people, when we end up in the emergency room, we totally take for granted, you know, that we're talking with a nurse, a healthcare provider, and they're always calm. We put our lives in your hands, you know, but something about this was different, uh, whether you showed it or not. On the other side for you, it's, am I okay? Right. You know, am I going to get this? I mean, that's a, that's a pretty new picture that you're painting. I mean, even in that story, it clearly is affecting you. What it really started affecting you. Did you get a sense it was starting to affect you at home or sleeping? Oh yeah. I would have, I would just toss and turn. I would have dreams that I couldn't get out of my PPE. Like I couldn't get the mask off and I couldn't get the gown off. And I was just like trapped in rooms. Like a dream like that? Yeah. I would dream like that because that's really how you felt. Wow. <laughs> during the day. That's how I felt during the day. I'm very claustrophobic to begin with. So our rooms were pretty small as, you know, we did what we had to do and the best we could, but the rooms were small. It was never set up for what we were doing. And so my sleep started to get disrupted. And, you know, in dreams, you know, sometimes we think they're trying to help us process what we're going through. So it's really interesting that your dreams were about being kind of trapped in all this stuff. And what were you able to do or not able to do in order to, you know, take care of yourself? Because it was, a, you know, it's different in a pandemic. Well, lucky for me, I was only an hour and a half from home at this assignment. So truly my support is at home with my dog and my husband and the beach and running. And I had bought a bicycle in February, obviously not knowing anything about COVID, and it was like the best thing that I had because when I was off, I would just go ride on my bike because nothing felt better than the breeze on my face. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to be in the house. I just wanted to be like, have the wind blow in my face on the beach, have, my wind, have the wind blow in my face like on the golf course, on my bicycle. I was like, I can't get enough air right now. That's how I felt when I was home. But it was very helpful and very therapeutic for me to have mm -hmm. those outlets. A powerful image of you know getting the air you know and, and you talk about on the other side how with the masks and being confined and you know a lot of people have have been saying on the podcast that they you know they were you know they couldn't go out couldn't go to the grocery store they were worried about you know being a vector for the virus to their family was that your experience oh god yeah every day i wondered if i was carrying it if i had it yet you know saying god i hope my n95 is working hope it, you know, was working on me. I wouldn't go in the grocery store. I always made my husband go in there. I just felt like a walking contaminant, honestly. I did not want to be responsible for getting anybody sick. A walking contaminant, that's powerful. It reminds me of a powerful story you told about a visit with a, a dentist or something. What, what was that about? Yeah, um, so I had really bad pain in my left lower jaw right where the N95 mask was hitting my jaw and it was actually becoming numb and swollen. It just it was a weird, weird thing that I had never had. And in fact, they tested me for COVID because they said, you know, COVID's showing such weird symptoms. Let's just test her for COVID. And that was negative. And they said, I think you should see a dentist. So 
when I got home, I called the dentist and he said, I hate to tell you this, but I don't want you in my office. You're working with COVID, you're a nurse, and I really don't want any healthcare workers in here. That hit me pretty hard. I was thinking, wow, I can't even get some care I need right now. So he just phoned me in an antibiotic and, you know, luckily it did clear up. That felt like, wow, he, he, I mean, he just validated how I felt. I felt like a contaminant and he was basically telling me I was. So, and you know, what, what's so striking is um, that, you know, you're both healthcare workers and yet it really accentuates this idea of uh, being a contaminant. Like you said, what did you end up doing by the way? I just took the antibiotic that he phoned in and it got better. My primary care doctor did a little tele Skype kind of visit with me and she agreed that it was probably being irritated by the mask. And on top of that, I was probably doing a lot of jaw clenching in my sleep mm-hmm. from stress. You know, other folks may have gotten upset because, you know, you're both healthcare workers, but you're not retreating. I mean, you're in the emergency room and, and people are coming in who actually are contaminated. And But maybe uh, that wasn't your experience to get upset about it. I don't know. No, I mean, at that point, it just seemed like there were bigger, more important things to get upset about as long as he could do something for me. It was just going to be that way. So this was all in your first assignment, right, during the pandemic. And then and then when that wound down, uh, what was your next uh, assignment? So I went to Farmington, New Mexico, the end of May, and I went for four weeks. It was near two Indian reservations. And they had big spikes in COVID, which is why I went. It was not a good experience. So you went, you literally went into the, the storm, so to speak, right into it to, to help. And, and it wasn't a good experience. In what way? What do you mean? Well, it was so different from Greenville. It didn't have that feeling of support from above. And We had to share face shields. You'd have to wipe it down and then hang it up and let the next person use it. They were like making the sanitized wipes with some kind of, I don't even know, but they had them like in these little rubber made homemade buckets that (laughs) I don't know what they were soaking them in. We had to clean our own rooms. I never saw housekeeping doing it. It just, I felt really vulnerable there, like really exposed. It sounds like you would, for sure. It sounds like they didn't really have resources. Did you know going into it that that was going to be the case or no? No, not really. And all their staff was burnt out. They were just burnt out. None of them cared anymore. It was, everybody was working four days a week. And I guess that's why they brought some travelers in because the staffing was down. And What a different picture than the one you painted at the beginning at your first placement. And again, as we think about what makes the difference in a crisis, because you talked about it felt like leadership and the organization was trying to keep you safe and had your back. And it it doesn't sound like that was the case here. It didn't feel that way. I don't know, you know, being an outsider and all, I wasn't there long enough to really assess that. But the feeling was that there wasn't that support. And there wasn't enough of the things that we needed to be safe. 
and the feelings are really important. I mean, I think they do lead to burnout, you know, and it, it sounds like you're not the only one that was having that feeling. And again, as we listen to your story, just one of the ways it's really helpful to hear it is because it helps us think about how we can always do better, you know, all of us and build better systems. And and I think you described this, was it like the worst four weeks of your life or something? It really was. What well, was one of the worst times in my life mentally, emotionally. I felt so isolated out there because nothing was open, first of all. So as beautiful as New Mexico is, you couldn't do anything. Even, you know, national parks were closed, state parks were closed, restaurants were closed. Even in the hotel I was staying in, you couldn't sit out in the lobby because they had the chairs up and had that all barricaded and blocked. They had the fitness room all blocked up. The patio, the pool was closed, not even a patio chair to sit on. So all of my things that I was used to doing for, you know, to try to help rejuvenate myself, it was gone. I couldn't even run outside because it just wasn't really a safe, you know, there was a lot of violence and crime in that area. And everybody there told us, you know, don't, run by yourself and all of that. So I just got lonelier and lonelier every single day. And this is a theme, you know, that that I think is consistent for people to understand is that when you've been on the front lines and and you're going through all the stress and the crisis, the, the double whammy is you can't do the things, you don't have access to the things that you would normally do to cope. But your story is is even... Boy, it sounded like a ghost town when you were talking and sort of like one by one by one, the things that you do. And and you were pretty clear before that, you know, when you're able, when you're able to get on the bike or able to get to the beach, just the feeling of the wind on your face or whatever was healing. So you don't, you're not asking for a lot, but every way you turned to do something, there wasn't really almost anything you could do. No, and thank God there was another travel nurse there staying in the same hotel. And uh, we would we would just sit out on the patio, literally on the stone, and crack open a bottle of Prosecco and be like, cheers. Um, we went through a lot together in, the, in four weeks. What a scene. And it's so glad to, you know, hear you laugh about it a little bit. I mean, how's your sense of humor held up through through this pandemic? You know, I know it's still there, but even, you know, when your kids tell you you're different, mom, you're different, that's kind of hard to take. Like, I don't honestly don't know how I feel from one hour to the next, if that makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. If I stop to try to analyze it all, it's so overwhelming. It's nothing that I can, I don't know how I feel. Like one day I'll be like feeling one way and the next a couple hours later, I feel differently. It's really hard to deal with that. But I try to stay really upbeat. I know what I need, and that's really important to know what you need. Yeah. I know I need to exercise. I know I need to get out and get fresh air. You know, I know I need to be near my dog. I, those are the things that make me feel better. That's kind of like my medicine. So I tell people, you know, when you have high blood pressure, you take your blood pressure medicine. You know, if you have mental health diagnosis or an illness and you need medicine for that, you take your medicine for that so that you feel okay. And so for me, 
going out and being on my bike or playing around to golf with my husband, like that just makes me forget about everything else around me. And it helps me to focus in the present and helps me feel better. But I don't always feel really happy. Well, and I think it's helpful for people to hear the way you said that. To, you know, you've come to realize these are the five things that are really important for me to do in my, let's say, call it self-care routine or something. And to stand up for that. Is that something that's come since the pandemic or were you, did you have that strength before? No, I've always been pretty like self-care focused, but the pandemic gave it a whole new meaning. Like I know that I need to do that stuff. It's not just a choice of like, oh, let's just go play around to golf. It's so much fun. Golf for me took me to a whole, like a beautiful place during this pandemic. Anytime I'm on the course, I just feel like I can let everything else go. And things have become more of like, you just, you're not doing them just to do them. You're doing them because you enjoy them, but you also need it. Like I need to do those things. And I never used to see it that way. I just saw it like, I enjoy that. That's why I do that. But it's definitely like my medicine almost. That's a really good point, I think. So you're in New Mexico. What was Operation Bring Suzanne Home? I realized I needed to come home because none of those things were there for me to cope. Nothing. And I just felt myself getting in a deeper, deeper hole like almost scared to be by myself. Flip side of that was I was afraid to let people down. My kids, my husband, like, what are they going to think if I just quit this and and come home? And even thinking about it now is clearly bringing up a feeling. Do you know what the feeling is? I don't ever want to feel that way again. And I'm afraid to feel that way again. So that's the feeling I have right now. So you, I never want to be that low again in my life. You remember that feeling intensely, it sounds like. And, you, and you're able to track your feeling about the feeling. That's actually really helpful. I think one thing about nurses is we're constantly assessing things. <laughs> so we are good assessors. And we have to remember to assess ourselves. And Operation Bring Susie Home was my kids that made the decision, like, Mom, you're coming home and we're coming to get you. And they jokingly called it that, you know, Operation Bring Susie Home. But it made me feel so good that they kind of were able to make a decision for me. And kind of took care of you in a bit, in a way. Oh, definitely. Definitely. It was the best road trip home ever. No kidding. So they, they were pretty tuned in to what you were going through at that point. Yeah, I think that we are very close anyways. Our, we have a very tight-knit little family that I think we communicate really well, and we're not afraid to tell each other how we're feeling. But as a mom, that makes you feel really, really weak when you're you know, asking your kids. They are grown adults, but still, you're always their mom. It's hard to say, like, what you guys are going to have to make this decision because I can't even decide what I'm doing in the next five minutes. That's basically what it came down to. So really a strength of the family, you know, for them to tune into you, for you to be able to allow them to take care of you. And you said it was the best road trip home. So what, what then, what happened? You went home and then what? Did you spend some time to actually taking care of yourself? I did. I spent the whole month of July at home 
and it was great. I really, I played so much golf. I was at the beach all the time and just outside. And I started journaling on that road trip out to New Mexico. So I continued journaling and I still journal to this day. And that has been helpful to you, kind of like medicine? Definitely. I mean, I, I go back and I read some of those pages and I think, holy crap, you've been through a lot, girl. <laughs> What's helpful about it? You know, I mean, let's say somebody's thinking about, oh, what should I do? You know, people I've heard about. And so let's say somebody doesn't yet have this thing that you have of knowing this is what I need, you know, but they hear, well, maybe I'll journal. Like, and they're like, well, what's that going to do? You know, just writing oh. stuff down. What, what would you say? It allows you to like brain dump everything that's going on in your, you know, your brain, it just gets overloaded and to just dump it on paper, it's almost like you're, you've got to vent to someone. So, and you, the beautiful part is, you know, nobody's looking at your spelling or any of that stuff, just brain dump, just let it go until you feel better and then stop writing. You know, you can write about anything you want. I've had a lot of people ask me about journaling and why do you journal? Like, what does that do? (laughs) Just try it. You'd be surprised. (laughs) Literally, does it feel like you're getting stuff literally out of your head in a way? Oh, yeah. You just definitely, definitely clears your brain. And it's on paper. So, you know, you can go back and you can look at it. And it almost validates the feelings that you did have. Like when I talk about New Mexico being the worst four weeks of my life, I can go back to my journal and I say, you weren't weak. This is incredible what you were going through. I can read my own words and know that, you know, that I did the right thing by coming home. So it's more than a brain dump. It also, it somehow puts it into a format that you can metabolize it. Or, you know, I I once heard the saying that, you know, part of what therapy is, is, you know, it's about suffering. It's taking suffering and acknowledging it, right? So not denying it bearing it, like getting through it. And then thirdly, putting it into perspective, you know, and you just reminded me of that with the journaling. So you were home for the whole month of July and and then what? In part of August. And then I went on to Roanoke, Virginia for a 10 week travel assignment. So wait a minute. So as I'm listening, I'm thinking, wow, because you had just had like the worst four years of four years, four weeks of your life. And then you finally have gotten, you know, kind of back and settled. How did you decide to go back and, and do work? I love being a nurse. Mm-hmm. I, I need to be a nurse. That just wasn't the right place for me to be at the time. But that doesn't mean, you know, somewhere else. So that part of you, you needed to do it. I was pretty much chomping at the bit by August. And then how did you decide where to go? I mean, did you check to make sure they had enough PPE? I mean, how did you? That assignment was really simple. It had the words non-COVID unit in it. (laughs) And that was important. Very much so. Yeah. And how was the assignment? How was that? It was great. The, it was, you know, just close enough to home that I could come home after my three day stretch. I have learned that I cannot be across the country away from the things that help me take care of myself. But that doesn't mean that I can't go within a few hours from home and, you know, be helpful that way. It was beautiful there. The mountains were beautiful. You know, we still wore, we wore some gear, but not, we didn't have COVID patients 
in that area of the ED and it was actually a nice break. So, I mean, again, it seems like the pandemic's been going on for a long time, which it has, but in a fairly short period of time, you learned some things about how you wanted to be a nurse, which is so important to you in the pandemic. So choosing the assignment and then being close to home. And one of the things we're talking about traveling nurses, and you had said something about during this pandemic, what's going on with traveling nurses and how they're being offered all kinds of things to do and what the effect, what, what were you saying about that? Yeah, the offers come in daily. I mean, and the amount of money is ridiculous. It's a ridiculous amount of money that you can, you can make a year's salary in two months, but it just, after a while, it kind of feels like you're just, I don't know, you're just making them a buck and your life is, has no meaning to them because they don't care what situation they put you in. So you have to be really careful what you pick and choose. Right now I'm working a mile from home at my little community hospital in the cardiac CCU, which is like ICU. And I am with, back with COVID patients and the pay is a lot less, but I need to take my time and make sure I pick the right fit for, you know, the next assignment. So that people get, that are travelers getting offered high salary is it like the more dangerous the assignment the higher the salary kind of thing not always sometimes it's just they have well i don't know what you want to classify as dangerous but they have high covid numbers and not enough staff that kind of thing you can go to south dakota right now for about twenty thousand a week but you had um a kind of realization in there some i don't know if it was one put words in your mouth that it's not worth the money or something but you said like value, you know, the system, you had some realization, the system that's set up this way isn't really valuing, you know, my life the way that I value my life. Was that right? Right. I mean, they just throw money at you and think, you know, here, go, you know, go into this, go work there and make, you know, this amount of money, but you're missing out the whole thing about, is it a good fit for you? Is it a safe environment? Your life is valuable. Like this is not about just nurses making money. <laughs> that piece is getting lost. And I get recruiters three or four a day asking me, do you wanna go here? Do you wanna go there? Like, first of all, you don't even know me and you're texting me this. Like you, I could literally have a job in five minutes. Any nurse could if they wanted to grab something like that. It's becoming like we're just money makers for them. Yeah, it's sort of like you've had this process for you, this realization of thinking about value differently. Like, this is what I value. This is what I value about things that are important to me. This is what I value about my life relative to how a system might value me. And yet, you know, sort of by definition, you need to be part of a system if you're gonna do something like nursing. You can't, you know, hang a shingle like be a private practice nurse, you're going to be in a system. So it comes across, as you're saying, because we're listening to people, that one of the things that maybe have been helpful to you, I don't know, is throughout this, having a clearer sense of, of your own value to you. Oh, absolutely. Because money is not my life, my family, my quality of life is more valuable to me than, than any, you know, big, crazy paying assignment where I'm going to go out there and get, 
I don't know, there's no quality of life in that. You're just raking in a ton of money in a very short period of time. For me personally, it's not what I want. I've heard nurses say, if I'm going to work in this crap, I might as well make the money that I want to make. So there is another side to it, not just my side for sure. But for me personally, I learned that about myself when I went to New Mexico, that I will be very picky about what I choose, where I go. It will not be about the money, but I know that other people feel differently and that's fine. It's whatever works for you, whatever gives you your you know, quality of life. That's a good point. And, and maybe for some people, they haven't had that New Mexico moment yet, you know? And we actually, when you're talking about the mismatch of value, like the system doesn't really value you the same way you do, that reminds me of something you said about, and it's complicated, but like, you know, society wanting to call you a hero. Most of us don't feel like heroes at all. We're, we're struggling. We're struggling. We're tired. We want this to go away. And... I can't even put that into words, how it makes me feel when somebody says, you're, you're my hero, you're a hero. Like, that doesn't make me feel better. It doesn't make me feel good. We don't, none of us, most of us do not do this for any kind of glory. Um, if you saw what we're doing, you would believe me when I tell you that. It's not a glamorous job. So I don't think any of us want pats on the back or any of that. It just doesn't feel good. We're just doing what we love to do. It's just become more difficult for us to do it. And we need support and understanding of that. Like, I'd rather somebody wear their mask going in the grocery store than call me a hero. Like, help us out. There's still people that aren't following basic guidelines. And I feel like they're slapping us in the face every time I see that stuff. So they really don't understand what you're going through. If they did, they wouldn't just call you a hero. They, they, they wear a mask. They don't understand what's going on. And it's, it's kind of ironic because it's it, it probably people, you know, mostly would say that to try to be helpful. You know, they're trying to help. And, you know, how do you person after person have that conversation? Well, if you really want to be helpful, maybe you feel better calling me a hero. But if you really want to help me, this is what would help me. Wear a mask. Get your family to wear a mask. If you don't mind, I wanted to go back to, you know, the way that you had been talking about the things that are important to take care of yourself. And I think, you know, you really strong things to say about that. And and you had said a couple of things. I wonder if you might speak to a little bit. One is this idea that we must put the oxygen mask on ourselves first. That's one thing. And then the other is that it's not a sign of weakness to do that, to ask for help or to ask, what do I need for me? That it's a sign of strength. Can you talk about those? Yeah, I think so. In order to help anybody else, just like if you're on an airplane and, you know, they say put your oxygen mask on first and then help those around you that need it. It's the same. Like I am no good to anybody if I don't help myself first. If my cup is not full, I can't help fill someone else's. And I know all that sounds so cheesy, but it's so true. It's so true that you have to take care of you first. And so if you put your oxygen mask on first and actually ask yourself, like, what is it that I need? That's what I did for myself in the New Mexico trip was, what is it that I need? It's not a sign of weakness that I, I need to go home. It means I'm strong enough to say, look, this isn't for me. This is, this is where I'm at. 
And it takes a lot of courage to tell people that you're feeling so weak and emotional. And I, so for me, I look at that as, wow, she's really strong because she was able to say what she needed. I really hope people hear that, you know, are listening to this now and hear that because hearing it from you is so much more powerful than reading it on paper, on a billboard or having me say it. But when you say it, it comes across that you really believe it. It does take strength. And the the oxygen mask thing, as you were saying that, I was thinking they actually say that every time on the plane. So A, of course, it must be important. But B, why do you have to keep reminding people? They kind of forget, you know, it's not top of mind. You know, maybe they do see it as a weakness. Maybe they, people are inclined naturally to try to help other people first, you know? So the work that you do or the way you're, you're talking about, it, I think really will help people. You know, Suzanne, it's been a, an absolute pleasure to be able to spend some time with you talking. And before we um, finish up, uh, let me just ask you, is there anything else that, uh, that we hadn't gotten to that you'd like to talk about? I don't think so. I just, um, I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to share some of my stories. And I just think it's important for people to remember this is not over yet. We're still going through this. So I'm sure there's so many out there that need to talk. There has to be. And it's okay if you need to. It's okay. That's really what I want to tell people. Please talk. Share your story. You know, I have coworkers that I see, you know, we watch each other cry in the middle of a shift. Like, we try not to lose it in the room when you're with the patient. That's all okay. You know, that actually is really what's coming across to me as I'm talking with you and listening to you is that you're really driving the point home. This isn't over. This isn't like you and me having a casual conversation at the end of a war, you know, we're still in it, you know, and I think you very articulately bring that across. And even with the feelings, like you said before, I don't know one hour to the next or one day to the next. I mean, I think you, the time that you've spent with us on the podcast is, is incredibly meaningful for people to be able to hear that. And so thank you for that. And thank you for what you do. I'm really glad that you love being a nurse. If I ever need help, hopefully I'm, I'm going to be in an emergency room where you are. So thanks again for, for joining us and good luck. Thank you. Thank you so much. Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in a Silent Pandemic, with Dr. John Santo Pietro, executive produced by Kevin M. Lynch, The Quell Foundation, and Mod Worldwide. Managing producer, Sarah Marshall, theme song by Musical Smile. The show is engineered and edited by Scott Waz and Steve Campagna of Philadelphia Post. Assistant audio editor, Vlad Radu, film editor at Mod Worldwide. Voiceover artist, Sinead Doyle. Research and development by Colleen Lowe, Nick Lee, Jessica Ripper, and Caitlin Spurlock. Special thanks to Renee Wilk and Brittany McCormick as associate producers. Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and you might hear your review on a future episode. Got a question? Email the Quell Foundation at liftthemask at thequellfoundation.org for sponsorship information or to find out how you can share your story as a guest on a future episode. If you haven't already, 
please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever great podcasts are downloaded. Also, please remember to share this podcast with friends and family who would enjoy this content. This is not a podcast for personal disclosure of suicidal thoughts or behaviors and is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. If you are in crisis, please call 911 or go to your nearest emergency department for assistance. Call 1-800-273-TALK, that's 1-800-273-8255, or text HELP to 741-741 if you're thinking about suicide. The Qual Foundation is a registered 501c3 not-for-profit organization benefiting the over 62 million Americans living with a mental health illness. Tax ID 47 512 